Hi there, and thanks for listening. If you're enjoying our podcast and have a recommendation about someone you think we should have on to share their voice and journey with the world, by all means, let us know. It could be an aid worker, monastic, author, journalist, scholar, resistance leader, really anyone with some tie or another to the ongoing situation in Myanmar. To offer up a name, go to our website, insightmyanmar.org, and let us know. But for now, just sit back and take a listen to today's episode. I'm really excited to bring you the following interview with Gail Fronsdale, a meditation teacher based in the United States. As you'll hear in the interview, Gail spent a number of months meditating intensively in Burma back in 1985, including time in monastic robes, which proved to be a formative experience in a spiritual journey. Personally speaking, it was also a delight for me to conduct this interview, as I used to play Gail's Dhamma discourses while sitting my own self-retreats in the caves of the Sagain Hills in Myanmar many years ago. Following our talk, Gail suggested that I virtually address meditation students in his community. The Sati Center for Buddhist Studies has generously offered to host this talk, and it's scheduled for Saturday, September 17th, from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time. You are also invited to attend. I'll mainly be speaking about Burmese Buddhism, the various meditation lineages there, and how I see meditation intersecting with the current democracy movement in Myanmar, as well as taking any questions posed from the audience. So in the end, I expect a wide-ranging discussion. To join this Zoom talk, follow the links in the write-up about this episode for further details, where you can also register. And with that, let's get into my talk with Gil. this episode of Insight Myanmar podcast to be joined by the meditation teacher, Gil Fronsdale. Gil, thanks so much for taking the time out of your schedule to uh, talk to us today. I'm happy, very happy to talk with you. Yeah, so th this is a real privilege for me. We've talked, we talked about this just a moment offline, but just to to let our listeners know, uh, in my years before, before the, the coup, actually even before the transition period, when I was living in Myanmar and taking my own self-courses, often in a, in a cave in the Sagain Hills, uh, it was your voice from Dhamma discourses that I was often listening to in the, the evenings in the cave after my day of meditation. Uh, somehow your discourses always really connected with me, and we haven't had the chance to talk or meet yet, but we've had some connection, at least a one-way connection from having heard your discourses and what they meant to me. And it's just a, it's just a real honor to, to get a chance to meet and talk with you after uh, hearing your voice after uh, in days of silence sometimes in Myanmar. Wonderful. Yeah. So uh, I'm happy to talk with you and you're making, my, making me more interested in you than talking about 
So <laughs> well, it could be a back and forth. We can we can definitely do that. But um, before we get to my side, uh, just to learn a bit about your background, your interest in Buddhism and meditation, and what brought you to to Myanmar eventually, uh, where you practiced, and how that influenced you when you went back to America. If you can just uh, take a moment and tell us a bit of your story. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you briefly the, the, the most uh, you know, salient uh, parts of my biography that have to do with my experience in Myanmar. And um, so I was a, a Zen practitioner for a good number of years. And it was ordained as a Zen monk, Zen priest, and was very happy practicing Zen and, uh, and didn't have much of an imagination or interest or curiosity to go beyond Zen because I was, I was pretty settled and content in the whole experience I'd found myself in. And one of those experiences was, uh, could be understood simplistically as a very deep uh, acceptance of the present moment, where I really felt a sense of uh, peace, belonging, connected, uh, simplicity. And, uh, and my meditation practice doing Zen had, uh, doing this kind of deep acceptance of the present moment kind of practice had brought me to uh, places of stillness or letting go or uh, falling, things falling away that uh, I never knew was possible for a person. And um, so I was very uh, content for quite a long time until there was a scandal with the, the abbot of the monastery. I went, then went to Japan to continue my Zen practice. But there, the experience was not quite as rich as I had in America, partly because it was uh, much more ritualistically based. And there was much less emphasis on meditation, paradoxically, at one of the, one of the main training monasteries in Japan. And um, I accidentally went to, accidentally, you know, uh, to get a new visa for Japan, went to Japan, to Thailand, was introduced to Vipassana in the Mahasi tradition, Mahasi uh, practice, in Thailand, and uh, after a year, year and a half or so, uh, decided that, um, maybe a couple of years, that I wanted to go back to the source of the Mahasi practice. It became crucial for me to practice that, continue that practice. Something happened in Thailand that, that um, I had no choice but to go further with this Vipassana practice. And so I went to the Mahasi Center. And... Uh, and was, I had the, the, the short contacts with the teacher Upandita outside of Burma. Uh, uh, and I practiced with him for a month in Nepal. And I stopped to visit him for a week at a time in Burma on the way to Nepal and back. And, um, and he was such a warm man and uh, very wonderful to be with and very accepting. And, and, um, and so I, I was all set to go to Burma. I went there. It took a long time to get a visa. I think it took nine months to get the visa and um, got there and practiced there under his tutelage, mostly him, for eight months. And that was a transformative experience for me. It, uh, I would say, you know, changed my life direction and everything. It was uh, quite something to be there. Uh, turned out that he was a very different uh, teacher when you came to practice at his monastery than he was when uh, he was a guest elsewhere. He was much more stern and strict. It was quite something. Uh, to see this change of personality in him when he, I, I, maybe because he took me more seriously. And when he took people seriously, there's a, I think there's a, sometimes a, some, a certain kind of Burmese 
paternal kind of attitude of care and of your people in your charge where you uh, are really strict with them. That's how you show your love or something. And um, so many of us Westerners who practice the Pandita receive that kind of uh, uh, pater- paternal, parental, parental, I think that's the word I want to use, parental kind of mm-hmm. And um But so what, why, why it worked so well for me to be with the Pandita and why the introduction I gave him for myself was that um, he had a much more of a goal-oriented practice and very strict and really... Um, really, you know, a lot of, lot of effort in practice. And, um, and a, a lot of the Westerners I knew at that time burned, burned up under his tutelage. And some people had really serious psychological uh, problems, challenges that they had to recover from after practicing with him. But uh, because I had the Zen background, um, the, um, I didn't buy into what the, 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 uh, the striving that he was teaching. But I did buy into the care and the attention, the attention to detail, the practice he was teaching. Uh, And and so this attention to detail uh, was a fantastic, uh, um, worked really well on the foundation of this deep acceptance practice I had in Zen. Mm. The combination worked really well for me. So I I kind of uh, thrived in uh, that practice in Burma. And, uh, and so there, anyway, that's, that's my background that brought me there. That was, it was, you know, relevant for my experience there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. And just to refresh, can you remind what year that was and were you a lay or monastic practi- practitioner at that time? So that was, uh, probably 1985 and the Burma had it had just been opened up again for Westerners to come there about three months before. Right. And, um, and so, um, um, 1985, I was told that, uh, there was a government spy just watching us Westerners meditate. Yeah. And that must've been very interesting for the spy. Um, <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, so, uh, 1985, what was the other question? Oh, were you lay or monastic? Yeah. Well, I was a Zen priest, Zen monk, and you know, it's more like a, it's, from the Burmese point of view, that I was a lay person. Yeah. But what it meant for Upandita was that um, uh, uh, I had to, I had, to, I was an ordained enough that to get to be ordained in Burma, I, I had to wait four months. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a rule somehow if you're already ordained in another tradition, you have to wait four months before uh, getting ordained as a Theravada monk. So, um, so I was ordained after four months. So for first, or first, for first four months I was lay. The second four months I was a monk. Mm, so that's interesting. So just focusing on that dynamic and distinction for a moment, do you recall differences in either your practice or your life there or your understanding? Anything? Some people just say that wearing the, the the robes it's just just a change of clothes it's just really a different kind of clothes you wear for others it's a more profound experience you you weren't exactly wearing lay clothes before you were in clothes of a zen priest but as you took on the myanmar bhikkhu robes did that did you notice any change in your life or practice or interactions at that time not really when i was ordained as a zen monk zen priest uh that was transformative because it was a but in uh, in myanmar uh, being a theravada monk 
uh, it wasn't so, uh, it didn't really, it didn't change almost anything for me mm-hmm. because I was um, doing intensive meditation practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I hardly lived the life of the monk. And if anything, being a monk um, was not as ideal as being a lay person in the monastery. Mm-hmm. Was every two weeks I had to go to uh, do the patimoka. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was, you know, for someone in intensive Mahasi practice, uh, anything that takes you out of sitting and walking and any, I mean, I was so, I was so into it that, uh, I would only wash my clothes. We had, we had da- a daily practice discussion with the Pandita, uh, talk about our practice, except for Sunday, it was, you know, one day a week or something. And so I would never wash my clothes except that when I was going to be, um, not see him because we were accountable for how many hours we meditated every day. <laughs> wow. And so we had to tell them how many hours of sitting, how many hours of walking meditation we did. And if you didn't do enough, that his eyebrows go up in a way that you would, you know, <laughs> was not good news. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I knew I wasn't going to report my hours, then I would uh, wash my clothes. And to get a sense of how limited my life was uh, and why, why, you know, anything, anything like getting ordained was made my life more complicated. Uh, this is the way I washed my clothes. I would, um, had a bucket. I brought a bucket with me from Thailand. I had my own little plastic bucket and I had an electric spoon that, uh, you stick in the wall socket. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'd fill my bucket with water, stick my sp- electric spoon in the socket and hang it into the water. And then I'd meditate for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. And then I would come out of meditation and I would uh, put my uh, clothes into the bucket of water to soak. And then I'd meditate for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. And then I would come out of meditation and I'd wring it out and hang it up to dry. And then I'd meditate for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. But that, that was as, as complicated as my day got. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if, um, so to, uh, uh, you know, go every two weeks to go and do the chant and, and, um, and then had to deal with the robes and mm. there were little things I had to do that I didn't have to do as a lay person. So my life was a little more complicated as a monk. So I benefited some from the monastic experience, but uh, just to tell you that my experience was very, very limited. Mm-hmm. When I were ordained as a monk, it was open-ended. It was like for the duration. I had no idea that it was going to be temporary. But after eight months, it was appropriate to leave, uh, to stop practicing with the Pandita. And I wanted to go practice at uh, IMS at uh, Massachusetts. I want to continue doing the Mahasi practice, but I wanted to do it with English um, teachers. So can, the language wasn't a barrier. And, um, but I was only had been a monk for four months, and I felt it was irresponsible to have not been trained as a monk to leave as a, as a monastic. So I disrobed only because of that. But, uh, you know, I was content being a monk. So my experience, you know, was very, you know, that was my experience. Mm, right. And did you go on alms rounds when you were a monk as well? Um, I don't think I went on alms rounds. Uh, maybe once. I remember once going barefoot. Maybe once I did it going barefoot. Mm-hmm. But I don't hardly remember. What I do remember was Upandita once took me to... Uh, have lunch at someone's as a as a at a layperson's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to, a few of us went and uh, and um, and you know just walked barefoot there and 
had they washed our feet and we came into the house and we sat down and we were served and then I went back to the monastery. Um, but that was about the extent of it. Mm, mm, right. What really strikes me in hearing that story is this was the mid eighties sometime from now and just your, your level of detail and describing just what you did during the day and how you were navigating the week and the interactions. I mean, this is a long time ago and to have that level of memory of those subtle nuanced things happening this time must have really made a mark on you to remember things so clearly unless you just are gifted with a, a blessed memory <laughs> about everything in life but you know the, these things are really standing out crystal clear from a time long ago i suppose so but uh, uh i mean it, 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 the meditation practice is what made the you know made the big impression on me mm -hmm. uh the details of daily life um, maybe part of the reason that they uh, some of those remain is that um there were so few of them. <laughs> right, right. You know, I mean, you know, I was meditating 17 hours a day. Wow. And so, and then, and then sleeping four hours or four or so, mm -hmm. and go, going to the meals and going to the Dharma talks and stuff. And so there wasn't that much um, to remember. Mm -hmm. So the things that happened, they were stood out, you know, they, you know, there was much, much less to remember. Than most people have in the course of months, <laughs> right? It it strikes me hearing that too. Seventeen hours a day, that detail, the detail about how um, you you had to do your laundry because the limited time you have, and reporting to Upandita. I think there's probably people out there listening, even very dedicated meditators who are are just kind of, um, for lack of a better word, cringing at uh, or or shocked by by that level of intensity. Just and Upandita is known among many of the different traditions as known as being extraordinarily disciplined, especially among those traditions that Westerners have access to. I should mention there are other traditions that there are, are no real English versions of that are more local Burmese traditions that are more intense than this, but they're mm -hmm. off the radar of Western practitioners. But among Western yogis, Upandita is definitely known for the disciplinarian side of the, the, the practice and the teaching and just what you share about your time there definitely gives that impression. And so to ask perhaps a silly question because I can't think of how else to word it. Like, did, did you like it? Was it, was it excruciating? Was it amazing? What, what, um, what background can you share about, you know, just being in an environment that was that intense? Oh, um, well, it varied over the eight months, of course, but, uh, the, you know, in terms of my memory and what, um, you know, what, what made the biggest impression on me, uh, was, um, you know, so that what stays most fresh in my mind was how wonderful it was, uh, mm, the meditation. Uh, I mean, I, I, I sat, you know, I, I sat, I had so much, so, such, so, such a long, uh, so long periods of extended you know, rapture bliss uh, mm. that I've ever had in my life. Mm. Um, there, was a, there was another Westerner down the hall from me who was struggling a lot. And um, I just wanted him to come. I had this idea that he should come and just sit. I, I did all my sitting meditation on my bed, mm -hmm. uh, kind of a wooden bed, wooden platform. And, uh, and I wanted him to, I was like, oh, he can just come and sit on my meditation spot. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure this, uh, uh, this uh, bubble of joy that I have, that it, just is, it, it's just kind of, it just 
is here in this bed now. You know, it doesn't go away when I go away. It's just here. Mm -hmm. If he just sat here, he would experience it. I had so much, um, you know, it was so engaging and time would go so fast because I would, you know, I would, I would sit for three hours at a time. Mm. Uh, and it would just, uh, time would go a lot along really fast. And it was, uh, so anyway, so that just, it was wonderful and, and, uh, engaging and I was fully into it. And, um, I just gave myself over fully to that practice that he had to offer. And, um, and I, I did, you know, as I said before, he had a striving quality to it, his teaching and his emphasis. And uh, for the first two months I was there, um, I just engaged fully in what he was kind of, I, I think I bought into some of the striving. I was kind of, and it kind of worked for me up to a certain point. That was, But then this wonderful thing happened, and that was that he left for two months. Mm -hmm. it, uh, he went to... Um, teach a two-month two retreat in Australia. And, uh, I and, the, and the substitute teacher was this wonderful man named Ulakana. You ever meet mm, Ulakana? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, in Sagain Hills, yeah. Yeah, so he was the, he was the uh, and he was, you know, if Upandita was the strict general ordering his troops to practice, <laughs> Ulakana was the sweetest grandmother you could ever want to have. Mm. Mm -hmm. You could do no wrong in Ulakana's uh, eyes. Wow. Like he was just so, so loving and so accepting and so delighted. And and so when Upandita left, um, he, I think he left at exactly the right time for me, <laughs> for me, because when he left, I relaxed. Mm. But I had much momentum going that then I dropped into a whole deep, deeper, deeper level of practice. Hmm. And then I, I just cruised along and, and just went deeper and deeper and deeper with uh, uh, under the tutu. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how much how responsible Ulakana was. I don't remember him teaching me much. Mm -hmm. um, what I remember was uh, just how accepting he was of me, and and how that uh, just created a wonderful um, kind of context for uh, the deepening of the practice I'd started with Pandita. And so by the time Benita came back, uh, he was treating me with a kind of kid gloves. He was so careful with me for a short while, for a while, because I was, you know, coursing so deeply in the practice. Mm. And um, so, um, so that was, that was all, so that was, you know, so Benita worked for me uh, because I, that nudge, the first two months of that pushing, I think it did, it did me well. But then uh, because he left, then I didn't end up with a, uh, the the downside of that kind of striving and uh i did it just enough to, until i could let go and not right. need it anymore. that's interesting it's interesting also looking at the polarity between two uh burmese buddhist monastic teachers from the same tradition no less of mahasi and just the <clears throat> how extraordinarily differently different they can be in how they're disseminating the teachings and working with students. And so that makes me wonder in coming to Burma and, and being, having all these same constants, um, the same, you know, the, the, the style, the place, uh, the tradition, everything else, but just having one difference, one variable in terms of their personality. I wonder 
you, you, you mentioned just now what that did for you as a student, but I wonder what that has done for you as a teacher. If, as you've developed into a meditation teacher in the U.S., uh, what examples or influences these two teachers have had on you in thinking about how you then relate to your students? I see. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's the question I want to answer. Sure. Uh, so, but uh, to try to, uh, to uh, try to try to meet what you're trying to ask. Um, so when I started being a teacher, so what, so when I was in Burma, uh, I was trying to, I was also trying to contend with and deal with the teachings I was receiving from uh, Upandita, and it was hard to accept them all, and um, and so. Um, uh, uh, so one of the, but what, what, in terms of what you asked now, um, so what I was trying to convey to you that uh, I found this wonderful combination of uh, the Zen, what I learned from Zen, of a radical um, acceptance of um, the present moment, that um, as it is, without any idea that there's uh, something to attain and to gain and anything to to just a moment of mindfulness is complete in itself. Mm. And, um, and I gained a lot from being on the Vipassana journey, being on this path that unfolds and deepens. It's clearly more than just being in the present moment. And, um, and so uh, I became interested in, and this, this has been kind of my, as a teacher, my negotiation with myself and the Dharma is how much to emphasize these two sides. Hmm. To emphasize uh, uh, the radical acceptance of the present moment mm-hmm. as something that's really valuable and important in and of itself, mm-hmm. and how much to uh, 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 present to people, teach to people that there is a goal, there is hmm. something to attain, there is a direction, there is an unfolding over time that can happen. And when I was first started to be a Vipassana teacher, um, I was still very much uh, under the influence of my Zen training. And so I did, a, for the first 10 years of my teaching, I did a lot of this acceptance practice part of it. And uh, not so much the striving that Dupanita had. But after about 10, 12 years of doing this, I began to feel that um, as wonderful as it was, I might have been doing a disservice to some of my students because... Um, without having some sense of what the potential is in this practice, uh, people don't orient themselves to that potential. Mm. And so it actually helps to have some sense of a goal, have some sense of how people can deepen and how much further this can go. Than, um, because what had happened for me in Zen practice, I, I was very at home, very content with the level of, of kind of deep, peaceful acceptance of the moment that I had attained. What Upandita showed me was that uh, in the micro moments of my life, I was not so accepting. Hmm. In the in the general overview of the day or the of the hour of the or of the minute, it seemed like I was you know quite at ease with how things were. But when I did this very fine, finely attuned attention of of insight practice, I saw that there was a lot more going on hmm. than I that I had missed, and also in a deeper lay, level of my mind that I had than I'd ever realized before. Mm-hmm. So I saw that, I, you know, I needed to do this practice to discover this, you know, 
that there were even deeper levels of acceptance than I'd known in Zen. And, um, and so, so then in the, in, you know, in the year, in 2000s, I started then slowly increasing more and more telling people that they're, you know, more like there is a goal and, and, um, and that's slowly grown over these years. I think, you know, that's, that's the direction for the last 20 years my teaching has taken is more and more emphasizing the journey, emphasizing the goal. <clears throat> In the 1990s, I would never use the word stream entry. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like, uh, it was, I was <clears throat> kind of dead set against it. <clears throat> mm-hmm. <clears throat> but um, in recent years, <clears throat> I, I, I mentioned it more and more <clears throat> because uh, regardless of the problems of mentioning it, I felt like it was important to let people know um, uh, to have some sense of a possibility that they would throw themselves into the practice a little bit, little bit more than they had been, or quite a bit more than they had been. Well, that I don't know. That was my attempt to answer your. No, that's that's great, and it, it makes me think of a number of things. I mean, for one, it mirrors one of the most important early Dhamma insights I had. I, I still remember it. It was, I think, the second. Goenka course I sat. Goenka was my introduction to the practice. And I was in Japan and somewhere where I was living at the time, somewhere near the middle of the course, the group sitting was about to start. And I suddenly had this, this urgent question that came to my mind, which was um, this dynamic between wanting to constantly strive to be better, whether that was in a spiritual worldly sense, to to constantly strive to be better than what I was, to improve myself every moment and every day, while at the same time completely loving and accepting myself for the person I was in that moment. And the dynamic and the tension of this question was so extreme, I actually broke the rule of the Goenka course and I ran into the bathroom with a, a piece of tissue paper and a, and a pen and I just wrote that question down on the tissue paper because it just seemed so incredibly urgent for me to have to think of and and process. And as time went on, I realized that it, it, I don't know what the answer to this question is. I mean, the, the answer to the question is something we can talk about for some time. It was more that the question itself is probably the most profound question I've ever I've ever asked myself. Um, just the mere juxtaposition of these two things and the awareness of these two together has has probably shaped my life ever since of realizing this um, this dynamic tension and and these two things that have to be tended, these two wings of the plane, whatever analogy one wants to use of loving myself and accepting myself every moment while also striving to be better than what I am this moment for the next moment. And uh, what also strikes me hearing this is um, an interview I did a couple years ago with a uh, Korean American um, nun slash lay practitioner. She has gone back and forth in robes, Melissa Coates, where she describes, uh, and she did Pa Oak, she describes when she first arrived in Myanmar, hearing the teacher talk in the Dhamma Hall of the the, uh, the the different attainment levels and just the excitement. She just said in all of her Dhamma life and practice in America, she had never once heard anyone talk about it as something that was possible or tangible or even practical, even uh, the steps leading towards that. And there was just this buzz of excitement that that indicated to her, this is what me and Mark can offer. This is, this is the difference of coming here to practice than what I get at home and just loving that it wasn't just something that made her lay life better and, and more, more balanced, but something that was actually striving for this greater goal. 
uh, I think on the flip side, having lived in Myanmar for some time and reflecting on on this creative tension and dynamic that you mentioned, I think it would just as we can offer some some uh, some observation that in the West they they there might be a hesitation for. Uh, for reasons that we can also discuss of why these attainments are not discussed as much. I think in Myanmar, there can also be a, in many contexts, there, there, there could be a lack of awareness or attention or instruction on being mindful of that moment. Uh, as much as there's an emphasis for the better rebirths and the good karma and the, uh, of course, the Abhidhamma, which is so central there, the actual moment-to-moment instructions of mindfulness is something that is probably not as pervasive in among, and if you make a general statement across Burmese Buddhist society, as knowledge and interest in towards those attainments. And so it just, it makes me think of a lot, just both on a personal journey as well as East-West, Myanmar-US, of uh, how the practice gets disseminated and and uh, what gets emphasized, uh, and the importance of having both of these together, having the uh, ability to, I think you called it the radical acceptance of 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 whatever the moment offers, and Pandita taught you to go deeper into that and deeper into perhaps the dissatisfaction that that wasn't apparent before that practice with him, while while also being, I really like what you said, being attuned to the goal of where it goes, that it's not just a a providing someone the tools of a more balanced life, but it it can actually lead to stream entry and more. Yeah, yeah. Very nice. So I'm delighted to hear that you had, you know, that you're navigating the same, the same uh, tension. So I, I, I navigated that with him, with Upandita, and then as a teacher, it's been something that it's it's constant, you know, regularly on my mind. How where do I find the balance between those two sides? Mm, right. And you had mentioned when you first talked about in your introduction, speaking about coming to Myanmar and practicing there, you called it just an, an extraordinarily transformational period in your life. I don't remember the exact words you used, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you you spoke about just how instrumental it was at that point in your life. And I, I think you've described that somewhat in terms of the practice that you gained and the uh, the Mahasi work that you were doing, but just to come back to that, is there is there anything else you'd want to add to that? Just highlighting how significant that was to your life and how it changed you going forth. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly, you know, what's useful to talk about, but you know, it was you know the profundity of it all for me. Maybe one 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 kind of little bit indirect way to get, get us. I'm happy to answer questions and say more, but an indirect way of answering question. Uh, so I went to, uh, you know, I went to, from Japan to get a new visa to go back to Japan. And while I was there, I thought I'll just try, learn something about Theravadan Buddhism. So I went to the first little monastery I could find, meditation monastery outside of uh, Bangkok. As I'm here, just what, what do you, you know, tell me what to do. And so I was given a kuti, a little hut on the edge of the monastery and, and told to do sitting and walking all day. And uh, it turned out it was a Mahasi center in Burmese, in, in Thailand. And uh, it took me 10 weeks to realize that the um, visa wasn't coming. And so my first uh, Vipassana retreat was 10 weeks long. And mm. so that was long enough to get my attention. And I got more concentrated in those 10 weeks than I'd ever been concentrated in practicing Zen. Because in Zen, the most set was, uh, intensive retreats was uh, seven days. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in that... Uh, in that concentrated state, I touched something I never touched before. 
and um, it felt like a little kernel. And in my own, you know, kind of non-technical mind, I called it um, a kernel of self. And um, without making any metaphysical stories about what that is, but it was it felt like I touched something. And it became essential for me to touch that again. And uh, I just knew that's, that's what I had to do. And uh, it was kind of a little bit like a dark night of the soul time for me because I went back to Japan and practiced there, but it, it was clear I wasn't going to touch that place in, in Japan. And so that's why it became so important to go back to, um, to go to Burma to keep doing this practice. It's the only way I knew how to, you know, I touched it in Vipassana practice once. So There's the only thing I knew how to do. The only thing that mattered for me, nothing really mattered anymore in life just to, but to touch that place. And um, so I went to Burma, did my eight months of practice. And while I was there, I didn't think about this kernel of self thing that I, I mean, once I was there to practice, I forgot about the strong urge to want to go practice. I was doing what I wanted to do. So I didn't think about this anymore. And then some months after coming back to the United States, after being there, I realized that that question had vanished or that quest to touch that place or the need to touch it. And I could never say that I actually touched it again, but it kind of, the whole thing vanished. The whole need or the whole situation of that vanished. Uh, it's almost like the kernel vanished and no longer became an issue. And, um, and so that's what happened. That's one way of saying what happened in Burma. Mm, mm, right. Thanks for that. And, uh, so in your time in Burma, I understand you were doing mostly an intensive practice. You referenced going out once to a, uh, a lay supporter's home to be offered a meal, but didn't have too many interactions outside of your own practice. D did being in the country or the culture or the people or anything about the actual place you were in, did it, did it affect or impact you in any way? Or were, were you just so focused on the practice that you weren't so aware of the surrounding uh, country and culture that you were in? Yeah, I wasn't so, so aware of the surrounding culture. Um, I mean, I certainly picked up some of it. I mean, some of it, uh, you probably know the loudspeakers in Burma. Yeah, right. And so, you know, the monastery was surrounded by these loudspeakers. And, uh, you know, I must have, you know, the amount of times I heard uh, Madonna's song, uh, just like <laughs> It was it was sung in Burmese, so I don't know what the lyrics oh, wow. actually. But uh, luckily, it wasn't Burmese. But that was played so often, and then there was like the <laughs> seven, seven day Abhidha Abhidhamma festivals, mm -hmm. where they would Abhidhamma twenty four hours a day for seven days, on these you know raspy public speakers. Yeah. So that was you know a little taste of the culture, but yeah. um, but I, I, to, 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 in terms of what was important for me. Um, there, uh, I was really uh, inspired by the generosity hmm. of the Burmese Buddhists that I encounter. I felt like I was, uh, you know, I hardly had any contact with the rest of Burma. But um, in, in the eight months I was there in the Mahasi Center, I really felt like I was the, a guest, a really uh, a guest of the country. And the, the whole, I felt the whole country was hosting me and caring hmm. for me. And uh at some point, I, need, I needed a dentist, and the dentist came to see me. Mm -hmm. And uh, at some point, uh, I had some other little health issue, and a doctor came to see me, and there was never any discussion about being payment. Or, mm. And um, I felt like anything that I needed, the, the country was there to take care of me. And 
I remember some very poor woman, when I was a monk, I think, I think I was a monk at that point, a very, very poor woman coming up to give me something. Uh, a, you know, that probably was a big deal for her and uh, some kind of food. And I was just so touched that uh, this care and attention and, and the generosity, I was touched by the fact that Dharma was offered freely in such a deep way. Mm. And there was never any hint that I was supposed to pay or do dana. Mm. Um, there wasn't any smell of it, any, any, any expectation of that from anyone when I was there. And to feel the, how freely it would seem to be offered and, and to experience Upandita, you know, six days a week offering us Dharma talks and meeting with us yeah. one on said, wow, this is quite, he's dedicated. This is quite generous. And, mm. and, um, and then feeling the devotion. Memhasi Center is like a, when I, when I first stepped onto the campus, I felt this, was, this is like a large junior college campus yeah, in, right. in the United States. And uh, there were times there were 5,000 people meditating there. Mm. Uh, and to witness uh, the, the, the devotion, dedication, the seriousness, mm. practice, one of the, one of the great sights of my life was there was a woman's meditation hall, a huge meditation hall with some like 500 women with meditating there at one time, all in rows. And as you know, um, Burmese women, when they meditate, at least when I was there, um, they kind of sit side saddle rather yeah, than cross-legged, right. which makes their, their spine much more erect than the men who sit cross-legged and what I saw mm -hmm. mostly over. Mm -hmm. And so I would go every morning, I'd walk by the women's meditation hall and it was a big outdoor building that had the long side of the walls were doors that big doors that opened up. So it was mostly open. You could walk by and see them sitting there and seeing 500 very dignified, uh, noble looking women meditate, mm. uh, completely still. That was so inspiring to see, mm. you know, this dedication and, so I think the atmosphere of meditation, of practice, of devotion, of the Dharma, that I felt uh, kind of oozing out of that particular corner of Burmese society that I was in, um, touched me in some deep emotional way hmm. that certainly, I think, uh, inspired my practice and guided mm -hmm. it. Probably to this day, inspires my dedication to teaching freely and hmm. not expecting anything and trying not to expect anything in return, certainly not asking for anything in return as often as I can. And um, I think from that experience there. That's amazing An experience uh, over three decades ago for a, uh, not a short period of time, but a, a limited period of time when you were there has just had this kind of impact on you to this day so strongly, so profoundly. And I think this is just to highlight as well, This this is also why on this platform we're so one of many reasons why we're so interested in hearing these stories is I think that there there comes to be a kind of flawed or misconstrued representation of Myanmar as being a broken country that is to be pitied and always is needy needy and is uh, you know one of the least developed country status in the UN and so really a place that that is just always in need of other things and I think this is not a we could talk about the political situation aside from this that's all true of course but when it's just given that one dimensional view 
it ignores the fact that this was the country and the culture that kickstarted the international mindfulness movement uh, from back from Mahasi Sayada and Lady Sayada. And this is the country that has just, you know, the minute that tourism opens up, the minute that visas are allowed and Westerners are able to go, this is the place that is just embracing unconditionally, as you describe, with such immense generosity, bringing people in with no strings attached and just giving, giving, giving. And not just giving from, not just standard giving or giving what they happen to have on hand, but giving a really priceless gift of spiritual teachings of liberation that very few other countries have access to masters that are able to disseminate in that way. And so it's it's so important as we look at this three-dimensional view of what Myanmar has been over the years and what it is now, and certainly the problems notwithstanding, that the other side of this is that it's been, it hasn't just been a beneficiary, but it's also been a, a tremendous giver uh, to the world and to the people who have come and, and exporting this to be able to uh, to be able to survive and thrive around the world, you know. Just the other day, we talked to one of the close disciples of Sayadaw Upandita, also an American, and he described not just coming to Upandita in Myanmar to receive the teachings on a personal level, but Upandita was concerned about the state of Myanmar going forward and um, the the political problems and the conflict, and wanted to make sure that the Dhamma would survive outside of Myanmar's borders. And so was was not just bringing people in on an individual level to teach them, but wanting to take efforts to make sure that it could be rooted and propagated uh, in other countries so that it would, so that whatever the fate was of Buddhism and the teachings in Myanmar, that it would have, he would at least be able to start these little fires in little places that could survive without him and without Myanmar. And so I think uh, to put what you're saying in this wider context, uh, the, just this memory and appreciation of, uh, in spite of some of the difficulties Myanmar has gone through, just how tremendously and unconditionally it is given and what it has what this access of what it has of this dhamma knowledge that this is not a small thing to give this is a tremendous thing to give and this is something that many practitioners around the world have looked towards Myanmar in, in different times in different ways even with the imperfections of Burmese Buddhism which we can all, also talk about but has seen it as a certain kind of spiritual authority that is able to to give in a way that few other places can mm-hmm. well great I'm inspired by uh, <laughs> what you said it was very, very lovely to hear and um and I think kind of in that inspiration that I've had from being there and my gratitude for my time there. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, mean, I think I mentioned before we started here that, that um, you know, I didn't know who you, who you are when you asked me to do a podcast. I didn't even know what your podcast was and I didn't even search it. But somehow with, because your name was Inside Myanmar, <laughs> it associated with all this goodness that I received from that country. Oh. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to, I'll talk to this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. And another thing to go back to is the Donna and uh, the generosity. And I think digging a bit deeper into that, I think the initial reaction of Westerners is definitely, uh, even tourists is just, wow, how, how giving this is and how, how supportive. But as I stayed there longer and lived in monasteries, and I think on my personal journey, I, I made a decision at some point that 
I wanted to live in monasteries without doing self-retreats because up to a certain point, my time in monasteries was basically with closed eyes, doing uh, striving, as you call it, to want to not waste a moment, uh, hearing not Upandita's voice in my ears, but Goenka's voice in my ears of uh-huh. how, how important it was to not waste a moment with uh, the time available. And at some point I realized, you know, there's a lot to this monastic culture, if I choose the right monasteries, of course, because there are many different kinds of, of traditions and teachers and environments. But if I choose the right monastery, there is a lot that I can learn and grow with my eyes open and interacting. Um, and, and that I don't have to be limited to, to this silent, intensive practice all the time. And as I made that decision to engage more, to learn more, interact uh, and learn the language, and I started to see the way, uh, see into Donna a bit deeper, one of the things that really impressed me was just the pure, simple joy of giving. And I think that in a Western context where at least I have felt trapped by certain conventions and thought patterns and to just see someone give 500 chat, you know, which is 50 cents at that time. And just have this absolute sense of delight to not be judging themselves for not giving more, for not be proud of themselves that they want people to know, like, look what I gave. But just this, and it was this um, declaration of truth almost, you know, that, that I have given 500 chat purely and it's for this purpose. And I say this is truth. I can rejoice in this truth. I can, whatever else I've done in my life, I can hold on to this and no one can take it away. And then you'd see the people around rejoice in it and say, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And, some, and sometimes it can be convention. Sometimes it can be ritual. Sometimes it can be actual joy and actual, oh, I am happy that a, a good thing has taken place. I am, I am pleased that there has been an, an, a wholesome act that I celebrate. And I just found the Burmese kind of these, at least in the monasteries I was in, as kind of these masters of getting as much mileage of generosity and goodwill from whatever giving was taking place. And, uh, and, and that really freed me to, to realizing that I, I didn't have to always be so self-judging, even self-hating or, you know, questioning and, um, you know, never really being satisfied with it. Just realizing that whatever I do, I could do that and, and have it be a finished thing and really take a sense of value in, in myself that I had done this or pleasure in someone else for doing it. And I, I remember having this attitude and then going out of the country, I ended up going to the Philippines and did a Goenka course there. And I remember an experience at the end of the course where um, someone had uh, someone had to 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 pay something. They used like an air conditioning in their room, and they they had to pay extra for that. Uh, and I, I don't know what it was. Let's say it was two hundred dollars, and then um, or or let's say like it was like a hundred and twenty dollars, and they gave two hundred dollars. And as we were giving the eighty dollars back, they said, "Oh, just keep it as Donna." And coming from Burma, I, I was just like, no, 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 you can't do it that way. You need to take this $80, hold it in your hands, know it's yours, and then give it back with the volition that, you know, because this is how you'll really benefit. And uh, and it just gave so much more of like making an intentional moment of of that, that simple act of generosity, that it wasn't just about sitting on the cushion and striving yeah. for these states or reaching these radical states of, of awareness in the present moment, which is important, but it's also the simple act of realizing you're doing a wholesome thing and feeling so good that you've decided to do that and trying to get away from this self-judgment and transactional nature and, and everything else and just simplify it to the, the, the most 
basic act of giving. And, and that's, I think, as I got deeper into it, and I wasn't just a recipient of that generosity, but also seeing the, me- the mechanics of how it was being displayed and trying to learn from it, you know, with my eyes open, that, uh, that I was really able to benefit from that lesson. Fantastic. Yeah. That is, and so I, the way you, you've talked about, um, there's a lot more to learn than from Burmese Buddhism or from Buddhism in general. Uh, to be had in community in the monasteries in the monastic life for example in the, in the social life there than just closing your eyes and doing this internal practice and this is a very important lesson for many people practicing here in the west and um, it, uh, it's not, not as bad as it used to be but I think that uh, the inside communities at IMS and Spirit Rock um, didn't do a good enough job for many years uh, making this connection of the practice into the rest of people's lives. Mm-hmm. And there was a time, especially in the 80s, where um, th- there was almost no focus on practicing in ordinary life. There was, I mean, there were very few urban centers or sitting groups, and, and the people just knew that uh, they felt great when they went on silent retreats. Mm-hmm. And then right. life, life fell apart outside, and so then they just uh, hurried to go back to silent retreats. Mm-hmm. But this idea that there's a, uh, how we live our lives is as important as being on retreat. Hmm. Right. And that also makes me think of something that I, I think you were quoted. I'm trying to remember where this was quoted. I think it was in Jake Davis's book, and I don't remember the title now, but it was um, about bringing Dhamma Buddhism to the, to the West. And I believe he had a quote of yours in there referencing how, and I read this so many years ago, so I, 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 it's not, um, not an exact quote. It's my memory of it, that um, you would express a concern that, uh, the 10 day format of presenting the meditation retreat has been such a powerful model for the practice of insight and integration that it was becoming very hard for teachers and centers to conceptualize other ways of bringing the practice than this model, which had become so consistent and persistent everywhere. So I'm wondering if I got that right. And, and if so, just expanding more on that. Yeah, I think that um, there's some truth to that. I mean, it's changed radically in the last 20 years. and uh, But uh, there's some truth to it that the <clears throat> the insight uh, movement that I'm part of, uh, it tends to, uh, or in a very broad way, broad strokes way of talking, to um, the people who get trained to be the, the you know, the teachers, uh, the orientation and training them is that they're going to be retreat teachers. And some of them only think of themselves as retreat teachers. And so on retreat, the kind of teachings you teach are very narrow. And uh, you don't necessarily, you talk, you give teachings that are relevant for being on the retreat. Um, and you hope they have some relevance to everyday life as well. But they're, they're retreat centric. And so it's a, uh, so uh, it's not, there's not often, isn't it's not a place to, those teachers don't have a good forum for how to support people in their daily life or in their social life, political life, economic life, uh, sexual life, all kinds of areas because um, of the narrowness of this central focus on retreats. As, the, as there's been a growth of uh, urban meditation centers in our movement and more and more sitting groups and 
<clears throat> I think that uh, this has uh, changed quite a bit. And so that now there's uh, lots of pl- lots of places that you can uh, learn uh, the teachings that uh, or learn learn how to live a Dharma life that has to do with your whole life more than just uh, what happens on retreat. Mm, that's great to hear that it's evolved in that way in the tradition you're in. Uh, now, in addition to your time being spent uh, in Myanmar in 1985. Uh, you also referenced before we talked that you had a connection with Usilananda, who was a Burmese monk from the Mahasi tradition, I believe. I think he was yeah. based in the Bay Area. Uh, yeah. Share a bit about your interaction with him and what he was doing uh, bringing the teachings to the U.S. Well, uh, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, uh, he came to America in the early 1990s and did a grand tour, went to IMS, went to different places. And apparently when he, uh, they came back to San Francisco to leave to go back to Burma, uh, Mahasi told Usilananda to stay in America to teach here. And uh, so he did. And uh, there was a, uh, I don't know when it was there, but so then when I was going to get ready to go to, um, to Burma, I wanted to learn a little bit what I was going to. So I heard about this Usilananda guy who lived in a, in a house uh, in Daly City, near, outside of San Francisco. <clears throat> and uh, I guess the house was being used as a Burmese temple. So I called him up and asked him if I can come see him. And he said, sure. So I showed up and knocked on the door and he opened the door for me. And the remarkable thing about meeting him was that I never met him before, but he treated me like we were old friends. Hmm. And I'd never had this experience of a total total stranger treating me like we're good friends. And so Hmm. happy to see me again. And somehow, and, um, and uh, we, and that's what I remember that meeting, how warm he was, and mm. the friendship, and the kindness, and the acceptance, and and um, so I don't remember what we talked about, but mostly I was getting ideas about what it meant to practice in Burma. And then when I came back uh, to the United States, I looked him up as well, and I would spend some time with him, and um, I did a retreat with him, uh, a one week retreat. And again, in terms of the diversity of Mahasi teachers, um, for a practice discussion, they were so informal. We were both mm-hmm. sitting on the couch, and, and it was more like we were just like friends saying hello and check, checking mm-hmm. in. Uh, it, it didn't have the formality and the strictness and the accountability to the practice that Upandita have. And, and uh, this idea of just being, uh, I felt like he was just being himself and friendly, and clearly he was a great meditation teacher. He knew the practice inside and out. But to have this sense of comfort and ease in himself and friendship was, uh, was, and he was a great scholar. You know, he was, um, I think he was a secretary of the, for Mahasi Sayadaw, you know, he had a central role at the Sixth Council in 1954. And so he was deeply steeped in the Dharma and the tradition and, and, um, and, uh, and then learning from, from him he was one of the maybe first people I started learning about that there were bodhisattvas in Burma. Hmm. People, people who were taking the bodhisattva path. Right. And, um, and so that was kind of novel. And the fact that he, I think he even wrote a little article about it. And um, he kind of opened my door. Oh, there's much more to Burmese Buddhism than mm-hmm. I. And, and then I met, I met this man, a Westerner who'd been a monk for Tungpulu Sayadaw. And uh, he was a, at his time, one of the great, I guess one of the great teachers, ascetic yeah. teachers in Burma. Mm-hmm. But because my friend was a monk, 
monks can talk about things that uh, monks are not allowed to talk to lay people about. Mm-hmm. Anything, you know, monks to lay people, I don't say anything that gets close to talking about their attainment. Mm-hmm. And so, but to, uh, but to my friend, he said, you know, people in Burma uh, think I'm an arhat, mm-hmm. but not an arhat because I'm on the bodhisattva path. Mm-hmm. I'm practicing to uh, be born in the time of Maitreya Buddha. Mm-hmm. And what that means in the Burmese uh, kind of doctrines of, of attainments, that Tempula Sayada was not even an ara, was not, not, not even a stream enterer. Mm-hmm. Because then you can't uh, hang out long enough to get reborn in the time of Maitreya Buddha. So to hear these different uh, stories and ideas and, and, to, and, to, and to hear with him and for others that I've known, other teachers, how they're held up to be arhats in the popular culture. Mm-hmm. And by people who don't really know. And, uh, and the amount of people who have their reputations of being arhats who probably aren't, it was a little bit disturbing for me. Um, I met uh, one, of, one, one of these teachers, uh, a Thai teacher who's considered to be an arhat, came to the West and I had to deal with his ethical transgressions. I had to kind oh. of intervene mm-hmm. and got to hear about things that no, people don't ever hear about. Mm-hmm. Said, oh, arhat, that's, that's what people think. Yeah. So this question of, uh, you know, and so the, the devotionalism where people are ready to hold people up on this pedestal of, of their high attainment um, is a little bit troublesome to me, sometimes because it's inaccurate. And so and in, even if it is accurate, uh, I think there's something a little bit uh, 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 irresponsible in giving such blind allegiance to other people. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really true. And I think you get the whole range of those things, the whole range of those features when you go to Myanmar. I think it's really important to note that for those who haven't been or who've just read some of the very, very limited literature that's come out, you're, you're accessing uh, a, a version of it that's been exported. And that version that's been exported always goes through a tremendous amount of changes as uh, depending on who is exporting it and how they're doing it. And going, when I went to Myanmar in 03 to pilgrimage and then 07 to live, I, I was really thrown into a, a world that I wasn't prepared for in so many ways. I, I could go on and on with examples, but especially from, on my side, I was coming from the Goenka tradition. So my, most of my prism for understanding it was through the stories and, and discourses and what I'd heard from that tradition. And to have that juxtaposed with the actual reality that was in front of me, the depth and breadth of Burmese Buddhism, it was uh, it was overwhelming, and I didn't have anyone to turn to. I didn't have anyone to really talk to about what I was feeling and and what uh, kind of dissociations and um, questions and confusions I was having. I, I I think I've since then I've tried to to give shortcuts or hints for people who've been in my position from through writings and blogs and these podcasts and being able just to to talk about those. I think one of the things that stands out is just that there's these vast similarities of the practice and the goal and the spiritual perspective that we have between uh, those of us who've practiced and even Burmese traditions abroad and then in Myanmar. But in, in Myanmar, these are those people that are holding these views are kind of the extreme traditional conservative orthodox version of that society. Whereas those of us holding the views in Western society are the other end. I mean, we're the alternative free thinking, you know, progressive, uh, 
uh, mindset. And so it's, um, and so even though we share this one kind of, uh, commonality in terms of how we're practicing and what we're practicing for, the values that we're holding around it are, are, are really quite different. And sometimes those do come to a head. I think also, you know, one can't just simply can't dismiss the Orientalist outlook, the Romanticism. Uh, we were talking before this podcast began about how I think for many practitioners, many Western practitioners, Burma does not represent a, a three-dimensional country with living people and their own problems and issues and imperfections. It's really more of a, a fantasy that is is in one's mind and feeding uh, the uh, the spiritual path that one is on. And, and it, it's playing some kind of phantasmical role in one's mind for uh, how one is approaching and, and integrating the practice. And I think once you break through that Orientalist or, or uh, romantic way of how you want, how what the country means to you and means to your practice and see it as actually a living people, those things start to break down and, and you start to see it more honestly and realistic. And I, I remember I was reading, I'm, I'm going to get the names wrong. I don't remember who the scholars were. I know Spiro, Milford Spiro was one. And, and I don't think I remember the name of the other, but Burma has been so close to so many people over the years. It just had brief moments of opening. And it was during the 1950s or 60s, there were a couple of American Buddhist scholars who got access to it. And they, in, in reading their conflict and their argument during those period, I, I found it just very educational for for the entire meditator community, really, where they were um, uh, one one of the. And this was years ago. I read this, so I might fumble some of the details. But one of the scholars had written something that was basically a somewhat of a criticism of the way Burmese Buddhist society was behaving, based on his understanding of. Uh, of how a Buddhist society should be and and the historical things he had read from the colonial period. And then the second scholar in response to that uh, basically argued that he was not so much observing the society as it, the Buddhist society as it was actually manifesting and showing itself, but that he was coming in with the structures of what he expected things to be and sometimes things he was reading from Burmese Buddhists themselves, but that were not so much authentic accounts, but more, um, more, more prescriptive of how, um, of, of what the society should be rather than what it was. And so wasn't the scholar wasn't the first scholar wasn't able to actually see how it was manifesting and wasn't studying what was actually there, but was studying what should be there and how it deviated from that. And the second scholar as a response to that was trying to open up new ways of looking at the, how the society operated by not viewing how it was described by Burmese as well as colonial and Western authors and meditators, but how it was manifesting. And in Buddhist scholar, in Burmese Buddhist scholarship, that certainly opened up um, far more in, re, you know, in the last 10 years, especially with the transition of, for example, Wakesa. I mean, the way that, that the Wakesa and the Nat um, devotion is understood by Western Buddhist scholar now is, is so different than it was before. It was really seen as something on the outskirts and something that some uh, deviants or practitioners engaged in beyond the normal. And it's now being seen as something that's so much more inclusive and integrated into so many more Burmese Buddhist practices that uh, that that has some form in, in the mainstream. Um, but I, I think there's 
there's been a hesitation over those years by practitioners as well as scholars that these things are a little weird. They're a little magical. We need to, we need to remove the, the mystical, unexplainable parts and make it uh, scientific and rational and have it fit with modern explanations. And I realize I'm <laughs> covering a lot of topics here as I, as I go yeah. along, but I think that, um, that that is something that many Buddhist teachers everywhere have had a problem with this new wave of Protestant Buddhism is trying to figure out how to, uh, how to make this practice appeal to a, a modern contemporary, uh, logical, rational West, largely Western audience. And yet there are such mystical elements in there that are sticking their heads up. And eventually down the road, you have this kind of contradiction. And I think okay. that the, the way that Burma has been understood over the years and the way that the Burmese themselves have presented it, because they felt, you know, many of them felt real shame during the colonial period. And then in the independence that they had these magical mystical elements popping their head, that there was a self-censorship on both sides that was trying to, to play those down and make it more of a, uh, a psychological tool or, or something, but then where do those things come, which are so integrated to begin with? So, <laughs> sorry, I'm all over the place here. I remember when I was uh, with the Pandita at the Masi Center, across the street from his house, which I went to almost every day, <clears throat> there was a, a spirit house in the tree. And uh, sometimes Burmese people would do their little devotions, offerings to the little spirit house. And so one day I asked Pandita what was going on over there. And, um, and he said, nothing's happening there. Uh, he just kind of was ignoring it. Like it, for him, it, yeah. it was, it was invisible to him, or at least it was, this is not something he was going to touch with me. And, um, and I was really struck that this is, I don't know what he believed about spirits house, but, uh, um, I wondered whether he, uh, it was not part of his worldview. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that there, that story makes sense to me and just being hesitant to want to explain something that doesn't fit into the version of practice that one wants to impart. Yeah, and that's why, you know, some other time maybe we can talk. I would love to uh, hear from you, uh, to hear how you contextualize uh, Upandita uh, and Mahasi in, um, in the context of their culture and their time. Yeah, so I think that um, that, that kind of coincides with something I was about to say anyway, and that's that when you look at how these things get exported, I think that um, there can be tremendously important Burmese traditions that Westerners have absolutely no access or knowledge to because probably simply because of language, because there has just simply not been an emissary who has been bilingually and culturally able to navigate bringing this tradition to another audience. And I think the Goenka uh, tradition is, is really interesting in that regard because uh, Mahasi, on the other hand, is Mahasi is big in the West and it's big in Myanmar. So it's, it's, it's just, it's, um, it, it has many monasteries, it's well-known, everything else. The Goenka tradition is quite big around the world, but quite insignificant in Burma. Um, it's uh, significant, I should put that with an asterisk, it's significant in the way that Goenka was a, a, an Indian businessman who started, who took a, a basically a Burmese Buddhist meditation practice and remodeled it for an international audience to make it go around the world. And is and so he's absolutely beloved and admired and revered in that sense that he was able to spread something from Burma in a way that very few people have. 
But in terms of the actual size and scope and importance within Burma, it's extremely small and insignificant. And then on the other hand, you have traditions, as I mentioned, that are just massive that no one has ever heard of just because there hasn't been that proper emissary to, to bring it there. And so I think that, um, that has been some of my fascination as a practitioner of being there is wanting to get a better picture of this, this landscape in, uh, in the country before it got exported to understand on their terms uh, the, the different traditions and their role and how they intersect and I, I don't know if I have any answers I don't know if anyone has any answers I mean it's a um, the plethora of of traditions that are there are, are absolutely mind-boggling uh, the only scholar I, I've known who, who's ever tried to tackle it, even in a small, small way, was Gustav Hauptmann, uh, who wrote a PhD thesis in 1990. And that's the one that when people are looking at meditative traditions, that's really the only resource out there that I know people go to. And it's a, a, fa- it's a bit messy, but a absolutely fascinating work that has just not been attempted by uh, by other authors. But uh but what I'm delighted by is meeting you and, and realizing that uh, you and your website and what you're doing, uh, you are being part of this bridge between West, uh, West, West and Myanmar. And uh, it, it's, it's, I think it's really important for the West to get a fuller picture of the country, the culture in which the practice has come from. Mm, um, well, I just want to reference where Burma is today with the coup and how difficult the news is coming out of there and, and how awful the situation is. And just as someone, as, as a meditation teacher and someone who has spent time in there and has gratitude to the country and the traditions, uh, just to hear any thoughts you've had in following and keeping up to date with how things have been uh-huh. progressing there. Well, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm that up to date to it. I don't. I don't think I have anything original to say about it. But, but except for one thing that I have, haven't heard anybody else say about all this, that uh, there's all kinds of horrible things to, uh, uh, coming out of Burma, including f- uh, from some of the monastics. Uh, that uh, at least the news in the West is some of these national uh, monks are nationalistic and uh, seemingly. Uh, uh, encouraging the violence against the Muslims and and um, and people ask me how could a Burmese monk do these kinds of things and uh, so uh, uh, I think I think there's one good thing about all this and that is that um, we don't uh, have it uh, it it helps us to understand that Buddhism is not an exception to the other religions. Mm-hmm. That uh, there's some people have this idea that Buddhism is the pure religion. In Buddhism, there's no violence and no war. <laughs> Somehow, Buddhism is all good. Uh, but all religions have their flaws. All religions have ways in which the followers of the religion do all kinds of strange things. And uh, so it kind of uh, pops the bubble of certain kind of uh, idealism of Buddhism that I think is a bubble that should be popped. I'll be honest, not only is asking for donations my least favorite thing in the world, but I find it pretty uncomfortable as well. 
Yet it's an unavoidable but necessary task in order to ensure that our platform can continue to bring you stories from post-coup Myanmar. And unfortunately, the truth of the matter is that there's a basic minimum cost to keep our engine humming. So please allow me to take a moment for that least favorite and uncomfortable thing to do and ask sincerely for your generosity in supporting our mission. If you found value in today's show and think others might as well, we ask that you take a moment to consider supporting the work. Thank you for taking the time to hear our spiel. And with that, it's off to work for the next episode. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts, or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.